Over the past week, the world has seen and heard about horrible things coming out of Afghanistan. People being trapped in the country, some trying to escape, even by holding on to departing airplanes, sometimes falling off to their deaths, bombs exploding at the Kabul airport, mothers throwing their babies over barbed wire, and just maddening stories of incompetence, like U.S. officials giving the Taliban a list of names of Americans and Afghan allies, to say nothing of the equipment and weaponry being left to the Taliban. Decisions that were made in the White House over the past few administrations are now being scrutinized in light of these events. And as a podcast on presidents, we wanted to provide some of that perspective, given just all of the news and all the things people are talking about. To help us sift through all of this is a former Army intelligence soldier who had earned the Bronze Star in Afghanistan. So he's been on the ground and has a lot of experience and knowledge to share about his time there. He's the, also the host of two podcasts, The Weekly Havoc and Savage Wonder. His name is Christopher Paul Meyer. Around 10,000 BCE, families and tribes of the ancestors to the people of Britain would arrive in the southern part of the island after crossing from land that bridged from Europe. The Welsh built houses, communities, kingdoms, and continued to survive through Romans, Saxons, Danes, and Normans. The language and culture influenced by these sources continued to change and thrive, becoming ancient and modern at the same time. Join me as we travel through the history, meeting the kings, queens, nobles, and everyday people that create and grew modern Wales from the seeds of the ancient past. Creoso, and welcome to the Welsh History Podcast. Chris, uh, if I may call you that, uh, thanks for being on the show. We appreciate you being here and taking the time. I know you're, you're very busy with a lot of stuff going on there, but thank you very much. Listen, it's my pleasure, and um, thanks a million for asking, and I'm really happy to be here. Sure. So since you served there, none of this is academic for you. Uh, you know what it's like to be in the country firsthand. You know people there. You know the impact that this is happening uh, this is having on real people and families. Uh, what's your personal history with Afghanistan? Yeah, so it's not as rich as I would have liked uh, had I had my 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 druthers. Um, I uh, it took me 19 years to get to Afghanistan, and um, I researched it heavily before I went, and uh, I was really glad to finally get my bite at the apple there. Um, my time there was uh, marred uh, because it, COVID happened and that had a devastating effect on our relationships with the Afghans, not a, um, emotionally, uh, not, not so much that they, we did or didn't like each other because of it, but just that we couldn't, you know, shake hands, hug each other, go get meals together, um, have those common rapport building exercises that cement friendships. Um, that said, I, I did have uh, seven months of unhindered 
access to Afghanistan and its people. And that was uh, one of the great privileges of my life. And I, I feel, I, I wish it could have been more. And I feel slightly, um, what's the best way to say this? Because it's both an honor and a sadness um, that I didn't get to have more of that time with the people there, but um, it, it was a, a very high honor. I enjoyed it deeply, and the gifts that I've gotten from my Afghan friends, the thing that in some cases they handcrafted things for my, my kid, um, you know, it, it, they were great people, and, and I enjoyed getting to know them, and um, I care a lot about that country. Afghanistan is in a very unique position geographically. Yep. Uh, tell me about that. Yeah, no, I'm glad you brought you started with that because I think that's something that frequently gets lost for people um, in America. <clears throat> Afghanistan, it, you we hear sometimes if you hear anything about it, it's oh, it's rocky terrain. You know, it's it's still in the seventh century, and and the terrain is as well. That's true, um, but it is also adjacent to every single one of the United States' significant geopolitical enemies, Iran, uh, Russia, or the former Soviet Union, uh, specifically Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, and Tajikistan, but once upon a time, all of which were part of the Soviet Union, and Russia still has influence in all three of those uh, countries. And China, of course, is adjacent to Afghanistan, which sometimes people forget. And um, th between those three countries, that's a whole lot of trouble that that we have uh, geopolitically. So for us to be in there, all three of those countries' backyards was significant, and um, it plays not just to our interests in Afghanistan, but it also plays into why Afghanistan has been Afghanistan, why it has been so torn apart in such a highly leveraged country that it never was the master of its own destiny. Its destiny was always determined by its neighbors. And with neighbors like that, uh, you can start to imagine why. That's an interesting point because uh, Afghanistan, as we all know, is often called the graveyard of empires. And by, there's a reason for that geographically is because it is in the, I guess you could say, the, the cross ways or the cross streets of so many empires. Yeah, I think a lot of people would be just on a, on a very personal level. A lot of people would be surprised, I think, to um, see the variety of people in Afghanistan. You will see people there with chinese uh looking features and you'll find you find out they're actually direct descendants of mongols of genghis khan uh when his when he invaded afghanistan then you'll meet other people that have red hair and blue eyes and were descended from probably the illicit coupling of a russian paratrooper and an afghan woman um, it is a broad spectrum of cultures that have come through Afghanistan, and all of them have left uh, a residual trace in Afghanistan. And it makes Afghanistan a wildly fascinating country, the most fascinating place I've ever been to by far. Um, and it speaks to the potential of Afghanistan as a cultural crossroads with food, with culture, with poetry, um, language. I mean, a lot of beauty that could be found in Afghanistan, unfortunately marred by all the violence that happens when you have such a leveraged country and actors that are willing to use those, uh, to willing to use that leverage against uh, the other factions there. 
Now, with anything in the news, especially something that's been in the news for so long, there are always distortions, misperceptions, things in the popular culture about a country. What are the biggest ones that we are hearing about Afghanistan? So I, I'll, I'll go with the ones that we generally hear or that I've heard um, kind of uh, globally about Afghanistan, the ones that you kind of always hear about. There's certain myths I've seen crop up lately based off of uh, the specific events in the last couple of weeks in Afghanistan. But generally, the types of things you always hear about is uh, Afghanistan's always been violent. Ah, they've always been that way. You have, we have no choice but to uh, leave them because they're always at war. And that's just untrue. Uh, I mean, there, there's no other way to put it. Um, I think it would surprise a lot of people to know that from 1747 to 1978, there was one dynasty ruling all of Afghanistan consistently. Now, that doesn't mean that it was without violence. There were revolutions. There was a civil war. Um, but it was one dynasty. But relative well, stability. R- relative long-term stability. And from 1929 to 1978, there actually was peace. Um, and it was achieved through an iron fist, literally the Iron Sheikh, Abdur Rahman, um, who was the Iron Sheikh of Afghanistan. He took power in 1880 and uh, took it, I think everyone would agree, too forcefully, but too forcefully served a purpose. And it unified the country because it basically killed, he killed all the dissenters. And uh, it did ultimately result in 1929 in a brief civil war that uh, deposed one of his descendants. Um, but after a nine-month period, the country was back and then gradually became more liberal to the point that in the 1970s, and you can Google this, um, you'll see women in Kabul wearing miniskirts. It, it gradually liberalized and, and modernized, and it wasn't Paris, but it wanted to be, and it was working towards it, and they had become wise enough to make gradual changes, not radical changes. Um so there was progress, and I, I think a lot of t- and uh, progress and peace and stability. Um, I think, and I'm, I'm stealing this from Thomas Barfield, who wrote a great book on Afghanistan. But he said the important point to remember about Afghanistan is it's it's been successful when it's been governed by what he calls the Swiss cheese model of government versus the American cheese model of government. And what he meant by that is. Uh, American cheese is a nice square block of cheese. And when you put it over something, it blankets it, it covers it. And that's how most nation states are. They are governed, you know, unilaterally by whoever their rulers are. In Afghanistan's case, Afghanistan worked best as a Swiss cheese model where it cut out little, let's use the Swiss phrasing, cantons, um, where they just said, look, we're not going to be able to rule these mountains. And those guys up there are kind of crazy, but also they're kind of isolated and they leave us alone for the most part. So we're just going to carve out these little areas that we're not really going to police. We're not going to tax. We're not going to monitor them too much. And as long as they don't mess with us and cause a lot of um, sternum drong, we're good. And that model worked shockingly well in Afghanistan. And uh, was and, and Afghanistan basically demonstrated how it could rule. And it is different. Its geography and its people make it a different country to govern than many other countries. But it does not mean it's ungovernable. 
So what about the perception of Afghanistan being essentially a country of, of tribes? It sounds like uh, there's some truth to that, but what, what would you say to that? No, that it's a, it's absolutely, uh, it's a true charge and then it's misinterpreted. The, the significance of that is misinterpreted. Yes. Um, it does have tribes and the tribe, the tribal affiliation is strong. I think a lot of people forget though, uh, that only goes so far. Um, even Al Qaeda, um, to the extent it recruits Afghans or the Taliban or Haqqani, you can find members of all the tribes in each of those organizations, much less the Afghan government. The point being that um, the tribal affiliation means something, but it doesn't mean everything. Really, where the tribes have their most utility is when they are weaponized against each other, and that's almost not always, but almost exclusively done through foreign influence. Um, like most highly leveraged countries, and the two that spring most to mind are Somalia and Afghanistan, uh, both those countries have had fates that have been uh, dictated by their neighbors. And the neighbors use the tribal affiliations f to their benefit. So you will see linkages and, and um, alliances uh, because of the ethnic heritage of certain tribes and regional partners, whether it's Tajiks with an Iranian influence, um, whether it's Pashtuns with a Pakistani influence, whether it's, um, uh, you know, the um, uh, Hazara with a very strong Iranian influence. Tajiks also, I should, uh, or Uzbeks have a, a association with Russia. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of uh, those kind of fault lines um, get exploited and that's where the tribal affiliations really become dangerous and um, and are weaponized. But they have shown that they can work together, whether for good or evil. They can the tribes do work together uh, daily in Afghanistan, so it, it doesn't need to be a deal breaker. It sounds like what you're saying is that it's it's a feature of society, but it's not um, it, it's not something that can't be overcome either. It's not like a fatal tendency. Um, now, one hundred percent. So you mentioned when we were talking about the geography of Afghanistan, you mentioned the Soviet, the former Soviet Union, and uh, we've been doing a series on the Cold War. Uh, can you talk about Afghanistan's geopolitical position during the Cold War and then how communism came there uh, during the latter half of it? So let me stipulate that um, I, I do not pretend to be, um, you know, a, a PhD level historian on this subject. And a lot of the stuff I'm going to do cliff. A lot of my notes in my head are cliff notes of Steve Cole's books, uh, ghost wars and director at S and Thomas Barfield's book, as I mentioned before on Afghanistan, um, both, uh, th those are the books that I, I really like. And if people want a deeper understanding on Afghanistan, I highly recommend them, uh, because they, I don't always agree with the conclusions either of those authors make, but their facts and their history and their knowledge, uh, their background knowledge on the area, I think is, is second to none. And I, I in my experience was borne out as very accurate. So to the, the best of my, uh, recollection and my ability to articulate what they, what I learned from them. Um, Afghanistan actually has a very fascinating history, uh, even going back to World War II. Uh, it's, 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 it's funny that one of the countries that Afghanistan was most closely aligned with up until, and I believe I'm right in saying this, the 1950s or 60s was Germany. 
uh, to the point that the Germans built a lot of the canals and dams that we ended up fighting in, in Helmand. And the German embassy, the German schools were all very, very strong in Kabul. And a certain generation of Afghans were raised speaking German. Um, to those wondering, uh, yes, the Nazis were in Afghanistan and even considered forming a formal alliance with Afghanistan. Uh, they didn't because Hitler, spoiler alert, was a racist enough that he didn't think the Afghans were worthy of an alliance. But Germ Germans had a very strong relationship, uh, including during the Nazi regime with Afghanistan. Now, over the Cold War, um, that obviously faded because the Nazi influence faded. But the Soviet influence increased, and that was nothing new. Russia had always... Uh, tried to exert a lot of influence influence on Afghanistan. Probably previous. I, I was just to say partly encountering the British Empire's influence in, in Central Asia. Right. One hundred percent. So they were used to having Afghanistan as their traditional buffer zone against British India. Mm -hmm. um, but what ended up happening, really, the leading edge of Soviet influence in Afghanistan was its propagandization of the universities that socialist ideology really started to um, filter into the universities, especially in the 1970s. It started in the 60s, and it really picked up a head of steam into the 1970s. So it was an ideological, ideological effort into Absolutely. The academia. And, and it's interesting to note that it, unlike, um, say, American leftism, uh, to the extent it might have been influenced by uh, socialist ideology, the ideology in Afghanistan um, – sort of split it it was it all came from marxist leninist ideology but most people and most people uh in the universities that were caught up in that did tend towards that secular uh socialism however the islamists in the universities also started to gain strength and they actually were also inspired by leninist approaches to islam in fact one of the core books that um gave them their uh, ideological underpinnings was a book that I forget ex exactly the title and I'll, I'll have to get back to you on that, but it, it subtitle was essentially a Leninist approach to Islamism. Um, and so socialist ideology really was a, was an engine that uh, if you were more inclined towards a secular life that fueled you. And if you're more inclined to a religious fundamentalist life that also fueled you. But so where they, um, they may have coincided was kind of like an anti-Western imperialism, yes. even if they're coming from very different, you know, secular atheistic versus Islamic fundamentalist. That's that's mm -hmm. fascinating. Uh, 100%. You're, you hit the nail exactly on the head. That's exactly right. Um, that, that the one common ground they both had was that they said, ah, hey, the United States is really uh, the evil power here. And, and that's right. That's where the ideologies um, coalesced. And so that, again, I'm going to try to give the cliff notes on this, but essentially what ended up happening is uh, a former prime minister of Afghanistan um, wanted to pull off a coup against the king because the king had been a initially a child king and had been powerless and other people had ruled in his name for a very long time. So when this uh, prime minister decided to retake power, he said, ah, this, I know the king's all grown up now, but I really should be in power and I have a better idea for this country. So he made the tactical mistake of empowering the socialists and enlisting them in his cause to overthrow the king Zahir Shah. And that was Daoud Shah who um, did that. And he became the president and 
uh, owed that success to the socialists. And then he set about trying to suppress the Islamists. And that was his second tactical mistake because the socialists escaped without much scrutiny. And while Daoud focused on fundamentalists, the socialists mustered their capabilities and with support from the Soviet Union in 1978, uh, the Marxist People's Democratic Party of Afghanistan or the PDPA uh, murdered Daoud and declared it a socialist regime. So there was uh, five years that he got away that he basically bought himself five years of ruling the country before he was murdered. And it took the PDPA about one year before they essentially had savaged the government and the government just couldn't stand and was teetering on the brink of collapse. And at that point, Moscow had to make a decision. Would they support their puppet government or would they um, just let them dangle in the breeze? And the Soviets made the huge and, and, and consequential strategic decision to go in and back their adherents in Kabul. And that obviously led to the Soviet invasion in December 1979. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today. There's one perspective that looks at that invasion as, and you're right to say it was such a critical, I mean, it, it became kind of the one of the absolute primary fronts in the Cold War. People sometimes point to that as a sign of an aggressive Soviet Union that was kind of resurgent. And at the time, America was going through the malaise. Uh, some say it was just the Soviets responding to the situation in their sphere of influence. H how do you look at that from kind of now I'm, we're pulling back to more of the American perspective here? Um, I got to be honest with you. I haven't considered it too much because I find it to be a distinction without a difference. Um, mm -hmm. Whether or not whatever their motives were, and I know there were factions of uh, of the Soviet government that deeply opposed going into Afghanistan, and obviously they were voted down. Um, what I do th and and so as to what extent this was an exercise in Soviet hubris, or whether there was um, you know it was just uh, whether there are other factors at work. I, I wouldn't pretend to have too much of an opinion on it. I, I do think. Um, I think as with any invading force, the, the risk benefit uh, calculation that had been made clearly weighed that this was the time to um, that they could get away with taking Afghanistan and doing something that the Russians had wanted to do for you know a century or so, um, and they could finally fulfill that vision. So it, it you know the math looked like it would make sense to them. Obviously, it didn't. Um, but yeah, if that answers your question, that's kind of where. 
Sure. It's the best it, I can see. It's it almost like the wrong question to ask. It, it sounds like. So once America, uh, once the Soviets uh, intervene, the Americans get involved. What do people get right? And what do people get wrong about American intervention in, in aid of the Mujahideen against the Soviets? I think what people get wrong is they forget what the purpose of foreign policy decision making is. Um, it is very easy in 2020, 2021 to sit back and uh, armchair quarterback this. Um, and it doesn't mean the armchair quarterbacking is right or has the correct perspective, but it's a heck of a lot easier than dealing with threats at the present time. And I think what a lot of people forget is that foreign policy is a game of what we in the military call 50 meter target, your, your closest target. That's what you're dealing with. If you become tunnel visioned uh, and obsessive about second and third order effects of each action you're going to take. You're going to be, it's going to be paralysis by analysis. You'll never get anything done. So you, you have to deal with the most imminent threats first. And in the 1980s, the most imminent threat was the Soviet union and the fact that it had gone out on a limb in Afghanistan. And that was a limb that we could exploit, um, that we could take action, that we could undermine the Soviets and, and, prophetically, we thought, yeah, we could potentially bring about the end of the Soviet Union if we played this thing outright. And it absolutely was a key cudgel to use that really did do immense damage towards the Soviet Union, both um, emotionally, uh, spiritually, if you will, for lack of a better word, and economically. So it was, it was their, the right their Vietnam. It was their it Vietnam. It was their Vietnam. Yeah, 100%. And, and so it was the right move to make. Now, that doesn't mean that we executed it perfectly, um, to be fair. Uh, I'm not sure anyone in the history of mankind has executed a military action perfectly. but um, And there were second and third order effects that we could have mitigated better, but that doesn't mean it was the wrong decision. And I think that's the thing that people um, forget. And I think it's I think a lot of people like to have the glib answer of, well, you know, this is what we get for supporting the Mujahideen. Is it? I'm not. It, it really isn't. Um, and I think people forget that the that the Mujahideen were many things and became many things after the fall of the Soviet Union. Uh, they did not necessarily become Al Qaeda. They did not necessarily become the Taliban. In fact, many, if not all, of the Taliban's most mortal enemies inside Afghanistan were all fellow Mujahideen. Um, so nothing was fait accompli. Um, at, by the time uh, the Soviets withdrew, uh, nothing. Our, our support of the Mujahideen did not necessarily mean that Afghanistan was going to take the turn that it did. However, our absence in Afghanistan sure as hell uh, put our thumbs on the scale to ensure that the, that what did end up happening would happen because we were blinded. Uh, we blinded ourselves. We pulled out. We lost all contact with what was going on in Afghanistan. Our attention was off it. Our intelligence assets were no longer there. We had no capability to read the situation in Afghanistan. And then the, the Mujahideen did metastasize into multiple different entities, uh, many of which would later come back and haunt us. I think that's a great point that you make. Uh, there's a lot to unpack there. But w the first thing is that, and I've heard people criticize this because after 9-11 happened, people started looking at U.S. intervention uh, during the Cold War in Afghanistan and drawing a quick, uh, you know, a linear, you know, kind of uh, portraying it as a linear storyline where it's like, 
okay, we went into Afghanistan intervention, supposedly that's bad. And then we get the blowback effects, but you're putting it in the proper context where a statesman during the seventies and eighties is dealing with the Soviet union. That's the pri- that is the priority as it should have been everything else looking at Afghanistan. Uh, we dealt with the situation as best we could at that time, but it was always within the broader context of the cold war. And those things, Third, fourth order effects are things that we could have dealt with later on, but it's kind of unrealistic to expect us to have known what was going to happen given the situation at the time. I think that's a, a great point. A hundred percent. Listen, you have to triage. Not If everything's important, nothing's important. So you have to be able to pick an order of battle and go, what's the biggest priority and what's the second most priority, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it is our fault that we didn't pay greater attention to those knock-on effects down the road and we didn't monitor them and keep an eye on them and try to keep our thumbs on the scale to make sure that we were um, mitigating those risks down the road. But that's a very different discussion than whether or not we should have intervened in Afghanistan in the first place. And, and it, you know, in the in our podcast episodes, we just released one on Reagan. We're going to release, uh, you know, two more. And Afghanistan was such a huge, as you said, it was the Vietnam, as we both agreed, it was the yeah. Vietnam for the Soviet Union, which played a huge role in the Soviet Union's downfall. And we talk about how Jimmy Carter had initiated the effort against the Taliban, uh, I'm sorry, the Mujahideen. Reagan expanded it. Give me an idea of just who exactly the Mujahideen was. You know, what were their origins and what what were they consisting of? So, um, well, they were Afghans initially. Um, and they were, uh, it, it was the classic David and Goliath asymmetrical warfare scenario. Um, you're looking at rural, um, tribal-based Afghans fighting back against one of the great mechanized war powers of all time for their Uh, homeland, for their homeland. I mean, it couldn't be a more feel good story, um, especially in the Western media and justifiably. So, um, where it gets a little bit more complicated is with the introduction of the foreign fighters into the Mujahideen. And that's where you see Egyptians, Saudis, Jordanians, um, people from across the Middle Eastern world start to uh, infiltrate and be brought into the Mujahideen. And they brought uh, a lot of things with them. They brought money. They brought training. But mostly what they brought was Wahhabism. They brought radical forms of Sunni Islam that had not previously been practiced in Afghanistan. And I think it's important to note that Afghanistan had a history of mobilizing jihadists against invading powers. They had done this twice with the British. Um, and there may have been other times that I'm forgetting, but I know at least in the late 19, uh, 19th century, the Afghan uh, c- civilian population had been mobilized twice in the name of defending Islam against the Brits. And both times, it was a transparently political play. Um, uh, the ruling monarchy emphasized that kind of propaganda simply to mobilize people who really didn't care about the monarchy. Um, and that was their rally cry. That was the best the monarchy could do. And then once the threat was dissipated, once the invading power had gone away, immediately you heard a lot less about Islam and, and nobody was really paying that much attention to uh, the radicalization 
parts of it because that wasn't that important. And it was really just a very transparent political play. But with the Mujahideen in the 1980s, the introduction of the foreign fighters really did start to get traction um, and the radicalization started to get traction and the Wahhabism started to get traction and the Sufi Islam uh, uh, heredity of Islam in Afghanistan started to diminish. And this has been true every place that Wahhabism has ever taken root. Um, and it seems like you hear about it. Uh, the countries that immediately pop to mind are again, Somalia and Afghanistan, both places that were uh, inhabited by Sufi Islam and um, or Sufi Muslims um, who were quickly, who quickly became the minority when Wahhabism took over. And that was really the lasting legacy of uh, the foreign fighters in the Mujahideen is they radicalized um, a lot of Afghans and and told them, look, this is the the, the Saudi uh, ideology and the Wahhabist ideology is really true Islam, and so a lot of things that were not particular to Af an Afghan style of Islam started to take hold, such as uh, the burqa, such as um, uh, you know fundamentalism writ large. Um, a lot of those things were from the desert. You know, uh, burqas make sense in the desert. You know, sandstorms happen. You need to protect your eyes. You need to, you know, make sure that you're not, the elements are not beating you up. They don't make sense in Afghanistan. They don't make sense in those mountains, but they do make sense in, in uh, you know, on the, on the Arabian Peninsula. So, uh, but Wahhabists see it as, well, this is part and parcel of pure Muslim ideology or Muslim practice. And, uh, and that's what they imported. And it's, uh, it would be funny if it weren't so tragic, but Afghanistan never, uh, outgrew that. And to this day, the Taliban and the L and the radical elements there continue to practice really Saudi style Wahhabism and not, uh, Islam that's organic to Afghanistan. Right. And just to clarify for anyone who might not know, Wahhabism, uh, extreme fundamentalist uh, version of Islam that came from Saudi Arabia. So essentially, you have kind of this, this, uh, you know, the the entrance, which is a relatively modern thing that happened. I mean, before that, you were saying that religion was often a tool, kind of in the same way nationalism was a tool by secular, sure. you know, uh, by people like Stalin, but then uh, religion would be a tool for for you know political powers in Afghanistan. Now it becomes a very fundamentalist uh, vision that enters. And you mentioned Sufi. Could could you clarify what that is again? So there's there's multiple sects, obviously, of Islam, and the 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 and I I, I should um, <laughs> if my brain wasn't partially fried right now, I'd, I'd be a, a, a bit more articulate on this. But Sufi is a I really hope I get this right. It's um, a subset of Sunni Islam, uh, just like Wahhabism is. So they're both in the Sunni sect. So you have Sunnis and you have Shia, um, and they're both in the Sunni sect, but they are radically different. Uh, the poet Rumi uh, was a famous uh, Sufi poet. Uh, there were um, Sufi Islam, I think, is best categorized by its love of poetry, its love of colorful scarves, dances. Uh, it's it's an incredibly poetic and artistic uh, uh, form of Islam. Uh, so much so, I'll fun little sidebar for any uh, culture fans out there. The actress Ellen Burstyn, I believe, converted to Sufi Islam in the 1970s or 80s, uh, just because artistically she just loved it so much. That's that's very Sufi Islam and uh, rich poetic history. 
uh, Wahhabism does not have the same history. Let's say that. Uh, Wahhabism is an incredibly strict fundamentalist form of Islam. And it, while it is not, Wahhabists are, uh, are not terrorists. Um, all Sunni terrorists, with incredibly few exceptions, come from the Wahhabist uh, strains inside Sunni Islam. So going back to the geography uh, and the geopolitical complexities of the Cold War, how did Pakistan and Saudi Arabia play in all of this? Obviously, with Saudi yeah. Arabia being the birthplace of Wahhabism, but how did they play, those specific governments play a role in this dur- during so, the Mujahideen era? Yeah. So um, I'll, I'll pay more attention to Pakistan, if you don't mind, than Saudi Arabia, only because Saudi Arabia, I feel like to talk about that starts to unspool a ball of yarn that would has taken many smart people, many very long books to try to explain and figure out. Um, I would defer to Steve Cole's book on Directorate S uh, and Ghost Wars uh, for for a lot of that information because I think he sums up a lot well. Uh, the bottom line with, with the Saudis, uh, if you just need a matchbook cover explanation of, of what their involvement was, they had money. Uh, they had oil money, and that could finance an awful lot. The Saudis um, are often a convenient boogeyman when we talk about Afghanistan uh, or the Middle East in general. It's not entirely without merit, but it is also unfair. The Saudis have been good allies, and they've been passive-aggressive enemies. <laughs> it depends what their interests are. But the biggest tool that they have is their money and their ability to leverage influence in the Middle East and the Central Asian states. And for that matter, nowadays, Africa and, and um, even the Far East uh, and Southeast Asia too. But um, that's all because of their money. So as far as ideology goes, Saudi Arabia has always believed that the biggest danger to the House of Saud is Wahhabism. And as a result, they cannot afford to police Wahhabists and keep them in the domain of Saudi Arabia. They've always found it safer to export Wahhabists to other countries and let other countries deal with Wahhabists. And that has been a um, this very codependent uh, resentful relationship that the House of Saud has had with uh, Wahhabist leaders um, since the inception uh, of Wahhabism. And that has made it an incredibly complicated relationship uh, that has had a lot of damaging effects for the world. Um, and uh, as Saudi Arabia in, uh, inoculates itself to the threat of Wahhabism, um, but the steps it's taken to do that have been very harmful for the rest of the world. And it's, um, it's an incredibly complicated subject to look at what moves the United States could have made to help the Saudis either mitigate that threat or overthrow the House of Saud or whatever else. It, they're, it's an incredibly complicated situation, and I'm, I don't believe I have any particular great insight into what the right answer with that would have been. Pakistan is a little bit of a different situation in that the Pakistanis really took the lead for us, for the United States, when it came to funding the Mujahideen. Um, because uh, while we and the Saudis would help fund, and the, and the Pakistanis would too, but the Pakistanis, because they were you know, neighbors to Afghanistan, uh, it seemed like they would be the best, uh, their ISI, their version of the CIA, would be the best entity to take the lead 
to interface with the Mujahideen. Now, Americans were on the ground and Americans did interact with the Mujahideen as well, but generally it was as guests of the ISI. They were the middle person, basically. They were the middle. Well, and the middle person, um, yeah, the middle person with uh, one, one, with who who very much were the let's say the, the front man almost even more than the middle man they they were the front person they were the, they were our fronts over there um doing the stuff that we wanted them to do and again this fit into the cold war scenario because india pakistan's mortal enemy um was linked up with the soviet union so for afghanistan to go to the soviets would have meant that pakistan would be wedged between a Soviet-influenced India and a Soviet-influenced Afghanistan, which was untenable to the Pakistanis. So that's why they decided to link up with us. The key mistake that we made, that the United States made, and it wasn't a mistake, but maybe we we didn't emphasize on our pullout, we didn't emphasize as much as we should have, that the Pakistanis' interest really was not against the Soviet Union. It was really against India. And that was where we kind of blinded ourselves to the possibilities that Pakistani ISI would see a lot of opportunity to manipulate and cultivate and develop uh, the Mujahideen into an instrument that it could use for its own purposes against India. And that, uh, but that relationship happened in the 1980s uh, because they were the best uh, tool at hand to use to actually equip, train, and develop the Mujahideen while we were fighting the Soviets. Yeah. So essentially, you're talking about a useful ally, but who has a different paradigm. And their paradigm uh, is, you know, in what it considers an existential uh, conflict with India. And to them, the Muj- Mujahideen was a tool to, uh, I guess, would that be essentially to fight the war against against uh, India? Is that basically 100%. P- Pakistan had faced a series of humiliating losses to India, specifically um, in Kashmir, the disputed territory between Pakistan and India. And Pakistan couldn't just send its commando units back into Kashmir to try to fight the Indians. Uh, they'd already lost uh, several times, and there, the international community would frown on such an overt display of belligerence from Pakistan. So that left Pakistan with the only recourse it could muster, which was a proxy force uh, through which it could have plausible deniability to attack India. And that became not just ultimately the Taliban, uh, but even the foreign fighters in Afghanistan. And if you remember the Mumbai attack of 2009, when the uh, uh, Lashkari Taiba came and slaughtered however many people it was in the hotels in Mumbai, um, that the, the fingerprints of the ISI ended up being revealed on that attack. And you can read, I, I can't remember who exactly I read on that, but those articles have, have since come out that made it very clear that, that, Pakistan, that the ISI uh, training and development was behind that. So this is uh, what happens when you have a, uh, you know, a, a kind of a recalcitrant junkyard dog at your beck and call and you're Pakistan. You have this entity that you, uh, I, th- I think one of the maybe helpful ways of thinking of it is sort of like Dr. Frankenstein and his monster. Uh, if the ISI was Dr. Frankenstein, it was there in the lab. It was helping build uh, this, this huge 
ferocious monster together that overthrows the Soviet Union, and then the monster has the come up has, has the wherewithal to break free of its bonds, roam the countryside, terrorize people, and now Doctor Frankenstein's left running after it, going, wait, 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 it's my monster. I mean, yeah, I'm gonna try to get control of it, but I. You know, he doesn't really have the control that he needs. Um, he has some carrots and some sticks, and sometimes they work and sometimes they don't. But he still needs that monster because that's his legacy and that does so much for him. So just to push the Dr. Frankenstein analogy to its end point, um, that I think is the relationship that Pakistan has with the Taliban and with many of the foreign fighter elements inside Afghanistan, even to this day. Basically a double-edged sword. And and that's very interesting because uh, the United States, which, uh, you know, by necessity forges alliances like it did in the Cold War against the Soviet Union, as one of my uh, friends used to, or coworkers used to say, once you make an alliance with a country or any kind of partnership, you kind of start owning some of their enemies, just like how, yeah. uh, you know, a partnership with Pakistan led to, uh, and uh, India had already been in the Soviet sphere, but it, it just complicated things all the more. Now, uh, a question oh, Richard, I... Richard, oh, sorry. I'm sorry, if, I, if you don't mind, can I just make one small point, please, just to please. be fair to yep. Pakistan? Pakistan also, I think it's important that people understand, Pakistan doesn't have unilateral control over its own government either. So the ISI... It's it's not necessarily like the CIA in that it has complete over government oversight and the government can crack the whip on on the CIA and tell it what to do. Pakistan can't do that with the ISI. Um, the elements of the ISI were behind the Benazir Bhutto assassination, um, where they killed the the leader of the country. Uh, so people uh, leaders in Pakistan have always had to be. They even have their own tenuous relationship with the ISI inside Pakistan. So I don't want to paint with a broad brush and say, boy, all Pakistan writ large has got this really manipulative, uh, toxic relationship with the, with the Taliban, with nefarious Afghan elements. It doesn't. The ISI and certain elements of the ISI do, um, and they scare enough of the rest of Pakistan that everyone else in Pakistan has to kind of tiptoe around this issue. And they, so it's not to say that they don't want to help the United States. It's sometimes they can't because even that, go- that government itself is not strong enough to police itself. Right, which only complicates uh, the United States' efforts in Pakistan. Absolutely. Hello, everyone. My name is Tom Kearns, and I host the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman Conquest in 1066. So far, we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons, and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go. With all that said, uh, we've been talking about the Mujahideen, U.S. support for them. Why did America leave Afghanistan after the fall of the Soviet Union? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, it, it, it would be great to have one villain uh, to point a finger at. And I guess there is a villain. It's just not a person. It's... Um, as always, <laughs> it seems like I think this, the safest villain we can point a finger at is uh, U.S. public opinion. Uh, whatever people care about, politicians will care about. And it's not to say some politicians aren't statesmen and real leaders and can, you know, make and can steer people's focus towards a subject they need to be focused on. Um, but 
that wasn't the case around 1989, 1990 in the United States. And no one in the United States, whether a civilian or a politician, was clamoring for involvement in Afghanistan. So what we sort of ended up happening is the State Department and the CIA had a bit of a turf war over how involved we needed to be with our exfil, with our exfiltration of Afghanistan, whether we needed to keep a presence on the ground, maintain relationships uh, with entities inside Afghanistan, or just completely bail out. And the CIA essentially won that turf war, and they were more inclined to leave and not uh, continue the relationships. But at the same time, the Islamabad station of the CIA was acutely aware of the threat the foreign fighters were posing. Uh, Milton Bearden was the CIA station chief. He wrote a, a biography where he covers this in depth about uh, their feelings uh, uh, and their fears about what was going to happen inside Afghanistan. Mostly they were worried about their sting of missiles that we had given to the Mujahideen to bring down Soviet aircraft and what was going to happen with them. The fact we had no accountability with them and we didn't know where they were going to end up. And the CIA as a national security tool obviously was going to be concerned about that. Um, but the bottom line uh, to answer your question, Richard, without getting into a, a book length explanation is that the, the political will was not there for us to keep our eye on the ball in on anything in Afghanistan. And we ended up coming back into Afghanistan about six or seven years later, as we started to realize, ah, we, we really need to start paying attention to these guys. And at that point, uh, the narrative had shifted substantially. And a lot of, you know, the Al Qaeda had, had now become an entity, uh, the Taliban had taken hold. So a lot of things have been metastasized and, um, started to foment in, in ways that we were now trying to play catch up and reassert ourselves uh, or in our influence there a little bit. And as fate would have it, it was a little bit too little, a little bit too late. Why did the CIA want to, you, you're talking about the turf war, why did they represent the opinion of wanting to get out of Afghanistan? Was it a matter of reorganization and reprioritizing to other regions of the world? Yeah. And I'm going a little bit from memory here, but um, there was a, a, a turf battle between a middle. It was a, a lot of it. It's a very boring answer. Uh, I'm afraid it's it, it, as I remember, it was a, it was a turf battle that had a lot to do with where your seat at the table was. Um, who was going to get the ear of the national security council? Um, who was the best implement implementation tool for security policy? Um, and State Department wanted to try to reassert itself because it had felt very boxed out during the 1980s when the CIA was getting to have all the fun and diplomacy was a little bit on the back burner, especially out of Islamabad in Pakistan. And uh, so there was a sense of trying to, yeah, reconfigure uh, not the organizational charts out there, but kind of where the power lay. And so it became this turf battle about, and, and, and I'm not trying to say that it was all a political battle. The people involved had very um, strong feelings about the right course of action for Afghanistan. Um, but they, uh, 
But the I, I really want to make sure I'm getting some of this right. But if I remember correctly, um, the ambassador in Pakistan had delegated power down to a mid-level associate, and he was having some issues getting his policies, which was for more involvement in Afghanistan, passed because of CIA objections, because the CIA, if anybody was going to do stuff in Afghanistan, the CIA wanted to make sure it was them, not State Department. So it becomes one of these sort of in the beltway, inside the beltway battles, but played out overseas. Um, And you know, the weird thing about both diplomacy and intelligence is they're both personality-based businesses. And sometimes it's not about the X's and O's. It's about the personalities involved. And I think if I had to sum it up, uh, the personalities were not clicking. And as a result, the mission suffered. And that's, um, I think, something that happens when there's not the political will to push past the personalities, uh, when everyone in the room knows that this is a problem that must get solved come hell or high water, you can kind of deal with the personalities. But when no one's paying attention to it, then ego and personality does start to come into play. And in that case, it, it just outweighed the value of trying to execute a mission because the mission itself uh, was nebulous at that point. So it, it sounds like there was a combination of uh, bureaucratic turf wars, uh, different views on what to do, all within the context of pressure from public opinion to kind of uh, retrench America's presence abroad. Because there's this sense that okay, that we have limited resources, we're um, we're drawing down our our presence abroad. We're not going to spend as much money, which you know is something that it does happen. There's kind of this cycle in American history where that does happen. So it's kind of bureaucratic pressures within the context of dwindling resources and a zeitgeist of pulling back from the world. Yeah. And I, I have to say, I don't believe, I wouldn't necessarily phrase it as, in my view, uh, uh, as pulling back because I don't think it, we weren't in the, that famous you know holiday of hi- from history phase that I think we got to in America at about 1993, 94. I think we were still before that. Uh, certainly the Gulf War still had yet to happen. Um, so we were still up for foreign involvement, I think. I would, so I wouldn't say there's even pressure from U.S. public opinion. I think it was more just an absence of public opinion about Afghanistan. We'd had our heartwarming stories of local uh, Afghans downing Soviet uh, helicopters, but that was very 1986. And it was out of sight, out of mind. And it was just... Um, it was a sin of omission, not commission. It was just it, we weren't thinking about Afghanistan. It wasn't necessarily that there was a push for us not to be involved. And I think it's the kind of thing that had the president, um, who at that point was George uh, George H. W. Bush, had he uh, made that a point, and had James Baker, his Secretary of State, made that a, a big point. I think people would have been down for the fight, and I think the, they could have roused the American people to that cause. I think it was just suffering from a lack of attention. Right, right. And and he had no shortage of other geopolitical events to put his attention to as well. True, true. Yep. So, uh, okay, Mujahideen, um, basically you have all these different groups, including foreign fighters, after the Cold War. So throughout the 90s, what happens during that lull period between outright takeover of the Taliban before that, but after essentially the Soviet Union pulls out? What happens in Afghanistan? Yeah, that's, that's a really... Um that that is pure chaos. So um, again, uh, it's it's a book length subject, but the the short answer is technically the old communist leader 
uh, still is in charge until I believe it was 1992 when he was finally executed and he was hung from the streets, uh, hung from a lamppost on the streets uh, of Kabul. Um, and I believe he was kind of field stripped like the, you would a deer. I mean, it was a very horrific, uh, savage execution and assassination um, that he ran into. And he had been getting housed. He had been living in exile, if you will, in the basement of the UN building in Kabul. Um, so, and, and his part of the story, which obviously is short, nasty, and brutish, uh, is, is the most clear cut of all of them. Everyone else, all the other former Mujahideen now split apart. And you have, um, uh, people like Gulbuddin Hekmatyar who go back to his roots. In the north, uh, you have people like uh, Dostum, uh, who became the vice president of Afghanistan, uh, who's a tribal Uzbek, who uh, goes back to his area, and they eat, they all start to warlord. They become the leaders of their geographic areas, and they all, as the Taliban is formed in the southwest of Afghanistan in about 1994 by Mullah Omar. Um, they all, and the Taliban starts to pick up a head of steam and, uh, obviously it's kind of, um, it's particular, the particular genius, if you will, of the Taliban was that it was offering to bring order to chaos that you had all these warlords running around and the drug trade was through the roof. The corruption was through the roof in official government channels, but it was all these tribes, all these tribal based warlords who were um, exercising complete unilateral control of their geographic regions um, that were uh, fighting each other and waging battles all across Afghanistan and constantly partnering with each other and then tearing apart those alliances. People that have been lifelong friends since uh, before the Soviets even got there now were forming their own uh, henchmen and their own armies and, and marching against each other. So the Taliban the, the, was the, was designed to bring order to that, and that order that they would bring would be that totalitarian style um, Islamo fascism that would you know, that we all identify with Islamic fundamentalism. And it early on it won a lot of supporters even among the local populace because it did bring order to chaos. If you raped a woman, there were severe and consequential uh, ramifications for that adjudicated by a panel of judges that were Taliban judges. Um, it was a proper forming shadow government, a proper functioning, I should say, a shadow government that would execute the laws, um, have its own police force, have its own uh, judges, have its own tax collectors, um, uh, you know, and, and, and take on the role of the government that was really not there um, and not functioning in, in any real way. So that was the beauty of the Taliban, if you will. Um, and it quickly came into conflict with the warlords. And it won some and it lost some. Uh, but those ensuing years was the turf battle between the Taliban and all those various warlord powers. And uh, the warlords started to learn that to defeat the Taliban – and as the Taliban had a pipeline to foreign money, and let's be clear, Pakistani ISI influence and training and money and, and development that the warlords did not have, 
the warlords realized they needed to band together and become friends again. And that eventually became the Northern Alliance that we partnered with when we came back after September 11th. And let me leave it there for any questions, because otherwise this this story kind of goes on and on and on. But it's a long answer to a short question. That's how things were going in the early 90s. That's what was happening right, in Afghanistan. Right. And America gets back. Uh, as we all know, uh, the Taliban had provided al-Qaeda safe haven. And uh, essentially, that became their launching pad to conduct the 9-11 attacks on the United States. Uh, we partnered, the United States partnered up with the Northern Alliance. Uh, so this is all post the 90s civil war, basically. Um, being a podcast on presidential history, we covered the different presidents' approach to the Cold War. If you could relatively quickly summarize President Bush's, Obama's, and Trump's approaches to Afghanistan being such a major front in the war on terror. Yeah, that's a great, uh, great question. So I'll start, if you don't mind, uh, working backwards. Um, let's first group Obama, Trump, and Biden together uh, as three presidents that wanted us out of Afghanistan. No, none of them wanted us to be there. Ironic because President Obama called it the good war in contrast to the Iraq war. And I, I do remember supporters of Obama mm -hmm. saying, making the distinction between Bush's bad war and the mm -hmm. good war. A hundred percent. The problem is, is that once he looked at the problem set, Obama realized that this was going to require more men and more money than he was willing to part with. And he was someone that was very much running. And even even on his reelection, he was really still running against the legacy of Bush. And ultimately, it wasn't just that Bush had... You know, it was easy to criticize Bush for Iraq when, and for Obama to paint that juxtaposition and say, well, I support Afghanistan, but not Iraq. But eventually, Obama ran out of wars to get out of. And in America, we have a recent and, um, in my view, unfortunate history of, incur of sending an incentive structure for our politicians to reward them for pulling us out of wars. And that regardless of the merits of the war, just leaving war in general is something to be supported politically. And Obama um, very much was a an effect of that. He he, he governed and he uh, ruled uh, and he ran, I should say, in, in based on that incentive structure. Uh, you know that uh, Bin Laden is dead and GM is alive. You know that uh, he was ending wars in Iraq, ending wars in Afghanistan. He wanted us out of those um, because that was a much easier way to govern. And when the Pentagon and sorry, now I'm jumping to Obama and then I'll I'll go out of order if you don't mind through these presidents. But Obama's big mistake was that when the Pentagon said we need a hundred thousand troops to do Afghanistan justice and to to solve the these problems correctly, Obama gave them half. And while even half would have been okay, in the very same speech that he um sent those fifty thousand troops in a surge into Afghanistan, he at the same time said we are going to start pulling those troops out in three years. So I'm a native New Yorker. I was raised in, in a in the New York City of, of the 1980s where crime ran amok. So I, I like parallels that I can understand with the housing projects and, and, and a city overrun by crime. And in that parallel, 
what I see Obama having done is essentially go to a housing project, flood it with cops and say, okay, they're going to be gone in 10 minutes, but everybody cooperate, give up all the drug dealers. Um, and then we're all going to be leaving in 10 minutes. Um, obviously no one's going to cooperate with you. It's going to be very hard to get that cooperation, much less get honest answers or expect people in the housing project to use that parallel. Um, to act responsibly, honorably, not cut their own side deals, um, or just, you know, scam and make enough money just to get themselves out of the housing projects. They're like, Hey, I got a good 10 minutes. And then, uh, you know, the cops are leaving and the criminals are going to be back. And as a result, um, all Obama did was, uh, engender corruption in the Afghan, uh, not just government, but in, even in its populace, because people were like, the clock is ticking. We've got a limited amount of time to make our money, move to Dubai and get out of here. Um, and while the Taliban and all the other groups said, okay, we've got three years to fight these guys and then they're gone. And it ended up taking longer, obviously, because each president successively had to wrestle with the reality that you just couldn't walk out of Afghanistan. You couldn't walk away in the middle of a fist fight you, you, there w- without having accomplished your mission. But um, that was what, that was the, the undercutting and underfunding and under-resourcing Afghanistan was really Obama's legacy. I can be much quicker on Trump and Biden. Uh, Trump was just capricious and arbitrary. There was nothing happening under Trump's watch that needed to change. Even when we drew troops down to 2,500, uh, it was Afghan-led missions. The United States was playing a purely train, advise, and assist uh, role or TAA role. And uh, it's a misnomer to look at February 2020 um, as, as us not having had any casualties since February 2020 um, because that was when the peace, when Trump started his reduction in violence initiative uh, to coincide with the peace talks in Doha. But if you look at the previous year in Afghanistan, when we actually were still fighting the Taliban, I forget what the exact number is, but it's, I think, around 30 at most uh, U.S. soldiers had died. We weren't losing many troops, and those were all Afghan-led missions, but we were giving them air power, intelligence support, ISR, drone platforms. Um, and as a result, the Taliban were still running scared. We could have made to maintain that posture indefinitely. We could have done that for another hundred years and we would have lost in that hundred years. We probably would have lost about 3000 soldiers over a hundred years, um, which in the terms of, you know, in the history of warfare would have been an incredibly bloodless, uh, uh, sacrifice on our part. And that's not to diminish the deaths of any of my fellow service members, but that's just to say that would have been an eminently, uh, affordable cost to make, um, when you look at blood and treasure that we'd have had to spend to keep the lid on that situation in Afghanistan, Com- compared to the alternative, and and I, oh sorry, mm-hmm. no, no, uh, no, yeah. and, and then um, and then all I was, was going to say is that uh, Biden's legacy is is simply that he, if there was ever a time to be partisan on in in his, uh, you know, in his view. If there was ever a time to reverse Trump, this was the time to do it. You took office, you're reversing Trump on everything else. Why not reverse the idiocy that was the reduction in violence initiative, the idiocy of the Doha peace talks? And instead, Biden doesn't. Biden goes along with it. And I think Steve Cole, again, in his book, Ghost Wars, hints at why that is. And it's because Biden, if if I can play amateur psychiatrist for a minute, uh, doesn't really like Afghans. And I think the reason he doesn't like them, and it's not completely unjustified, is because he really resented the corruption he saw in Afghanistan in 2006-7 when he was 
going over as a member of the uh, Foreign Service uh, Armed Forces Committee, I think. Anyway, but he was spending a lot of time in Afghanistan. Uh, foreign Foreign Relations Committee. Foreign Relations, yeah, thank right. you. So as a member of the Foreign Relations Committee, he was spending a lot of time there. He saw the corruption up front. He really resented it. He really resents Afghan leadership. And as a result, he had a chip on his shoulder and wanted us out of there. That's again my amateur psychiatry on this, but um, that's what I see, and uh, and and that kind of stubborn petulance that he had over the actions taken in Afghanistan steam, seemed to stem from that, in my view. Well, it, it's very interesting because uh, given the fact that during the Obama years, the U.S. military essentially was left with half of what it said it needed to accomplish its goal. And yet it was able to create, despite that, was able to create a, a make the most of it essentially and create a relatively low cost, as stable yep. as it gets situation yep. with the Taliban and with President Trump. And lots of things can be said about President Trump. But uh, the sense that I got was that he looked at all of these things. He, he, he has not been a fan of U.S. interventions abroad. He's made that very clear. He kind of looks at all of them from uh, a, a very specific cost-benefit analysis from his perspective. Um, felt they weren't worth it for whatever reason, maybe symbolically, whatever. Despite the fact that it was a low-cost effort, implemented what you call uh, what what he called the over the horizon. I'll ask you a little bit about that in a second. Yeah. But then with President. Biden, it, it was more of a, uh, I guess, uh, just from speculation here, uh, kind of like a, a personal feel of who the people were over there as opposed to looking at the broader situation. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not. It's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily. Could you expand a little bit on the Over the Horizon um, a program that uh, Trump put into place? <laughs> yeah, um, I, I wish I could. Um, I, and I, I say that so, sort of glibly. Um, the, I'll tell you what the concept of Over the Horizon is, and then I'll tell you what I see being executed. Um, the concept of Over the Horizon is that you don't have to have anybody on the ground in order to execute a counterterror plan or an intelligence collection plan. Um, or in other words, you can monitor Afghanistan indefinitely without actually being there. Um, it sounds great. And it's, and in a Hollywood movie, I'm sure we could design something like that that would work. In practice, um, it's, I, I can't think of a better word than to say laughable. Um, it, it, the, the, the capabilities that we have in Afghanistan, even, you know, as we, as we're recording this, you know, the, the drone strikes that we're doing on ISIS K leaders inside Afghanistan right now, that's all well and good. Our ability to do those is going to diminish exponentially with each passing week that we are not no longer in Afghanistan. Uh, those capabilities rapidly diminish. There is, without having people on the ground, there is zero way of maintaining that. And you can always have satellites in the air. 
um, that can look down. Uh, that's easy. The, the problem is satellites aren't people. They can't tell you really what's happening. They can tell you kind of uh, large scale, you know, uh, major muscle group movement, but they can't tell you intentions, plans, um, uh, the atmospherics, the personalia. And unfortunately, especially in a place like Afghanistan, that is, that's the game. You have to be on the ground. And um, even to execute kinetic strikes the way we're doing, uh, it's incredibly difficult even to confirm that you've killed the right person without somebody on the ground. There need to be multiple ways of vetting information like that. And um, I, I, I have incredibly little faith that over the horizon is going to be a plausible way of executing that mission going forward. I also think that one of the things people forget is that whatever tactics you use, and I'm, I'm not in the military, so I'm, I'm not an expert on this, so please clarify, uh, the enemy will always adjust to what you're doing. And so whatever, uh, you know, I, I guess, uh, strategies that we've limited ourselves to, we have to expect that the enemy will adjust to that. And without having anyone in the ground, you have less uh, space to make those adjustments, it sounds like. I, I with, with I, I gild the lily with anything else I would say. Yes, that's that's absolutely right. Yes, mm -hmm. I think that such a big part of this is this overarching debate about what America's role is in the world. And I just for myself, I think that there's been a lot of misunderstanding about that. And as someone who who loves history, um, a lot of that has been manipulated. You know, I, I've noticed that people who criticize America's uh, you know interventions abroad tend to cherry pick and look at, okay, well, we did this and that led to all these horrible things. But people rarely ask, well, if America hadn't intervened, what would have right. happened? Right. And they, they tend to ignore the lesson of when America either does not intervene or pulls out, it's forced later on to intervene at a worse huh. strategic position. That's it right. sounds like that's yeah. That's something that could happen here. Now, what do you say to people who, who have those criticisms uh, and say, well, this is more costly and our intervention was bad from the start? And what, what do you say to those, to those people? Yeah, I mean, that, so if, if anybody thinks that our, our, our intervention in the very first instance in, on September, after September 11th, 2001, was bad, um, I, I don't know what to say. Um, there is only one appropriate response to a homeland terror attack that kills 3,000 people, and that's you, you have to take uh, military action, um, unless it's a death cult that no longer exists and they all blew themselves up in that one instance. But I mean, if there's people that survive that and that are much less that are planning and have the capability, the motive, the means, and the ability to continue to carry out those kind of attacks, you have to go after them. This is why we have militaries. This is why we have an intelligence infrastructure is exactly for this kind of thing. So um, to not exercise it now, I would say if, if you're so reflexively anti-war that that doesn't even, that's not even a casus belli, uh, I, I don't know what to tell you. Um, then, then you're just, then you just believe all militaries should be disbanded. I guess. Um, your to your, I think, larger point. Look, you're right. The 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 cause for the United States to be there has not diminished since we went there on September after September 11th, 2001. Um, 
the, the same enemy is in play. A lot of good has been done in the ensuing 20 years. It's not like it's all for nothing or has all been for nothing. Um, hard, but, hard fought accomplishments with the blood of people you probably knew. A hundred percent. Yeah, it, absolutely. Um, and, and it, 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 there's no two ways about it. The longer that we remain out of Afghanistan now, the more those accomplishments will recede into, uh, memory and, and the good that those accomplishments did will start to diminish. Um, but just as a little data point, and it's something I've, I've told a few people, um, recently, you know, one of the, one of the last, uh, fobs I was working at in Afghanistan, the village outside our fob, um, had houses for sale. And out of curiosity, I went out and looked around just to see what, what it would cost for, uh, a person like me to own a house. And no, I'm joking, but just for a general Afghan, what, what does it cost them to buy a house in this little rural mm-hmm. village in, 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 uh, Southern Afghanistan, the houses were going for 120,000 us. And that's not because they saw my American face or anything like that. That's this was all done with with cutouts and all the rest of it. So that's actually the price it was going for one hundred twenty thousand U.S. That's if you just needed one quick glib little data point on the impact that we made to Afghanistan, and you need a metric to tie that to. That to me is it. We had taken even rural Afghanistan to a place where they could have a bit of an economy, make a little bit of money. People were willing, felt safe enough to buy homes and uh, make that kind of financial investment. Um, so I, I think that's worth saying. We, we did an awful lot of good while we were there. Um, but yes, that good is, uh, is going to regress very, very quickly the longer we are not there. And, um, yeah, these next steps are what is going to is what concerns me greatly. I, I think that when you mention something like that, there's an element of when people talk about abandoning an ally. Uh, there, there are a few other ways to describe it, um, and that's how this is being described. What do you think are the implications of that for America's alliances elsewhere? Um, it, alliances, relationships, be it with Taiwan, be it with yeah. South Korea, in Europe, etc. And also, uh, I'm curious also your perspective on how this compares to what happened with America leaving South Vietnam during the Vietnam War. And I, I ask that because uh, that's become a symbolic moment, uh, maybe the biggest symbolic moment prior to this of America leaving. But in in that situation... As bad as that was, it seemed like there was kind of a refocusing where there was this costly pullout. The implications were were very bad in many ways, but it also kind of allowed America to refocus back away from Southeast Asia and back to, say, Europe and back to, say, directly on the Soviet Union. And there was actually some good that came out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, mm-hmm. when the Defense Department lost money at the end of the Vietnam War, it actually uh, like kind of forced them to spend it more wisely on things like stealth technology. This might be kind of a, a generalization, but you know there were some like positive things that came out of something very bad. What? How do you see this all playing out with the alliances and just moving forward uh, with America's defense policy? Yeah, I'll, I'll take the Vietnam piece first, if you don't mind. Uh, sure, because I do think there's um, obviously there's parallels. Mm-hmm. But I think it's important to really note the biggest difference, which is that 
the way Vietnam, the, our pullout in Vietnam occurred, it, it emotionally, I think, for this country, and I think what's been transmitted, if not through history and the history books, certainly through movies and pop culture, has been this, this forced wallow in um, the tragedy of Vietnam. The tragedy for our soldiers, the tragedy for the Cambodian boat people, the tragedy for the Vietnamese that had to flee, um, you know, and and we kind of wallow in that. And that is our privilege because the fight in Vietnam did not follow us home. Now, you can argue about whether it would have 10 years before that. Um, you can argue about how great a threat communism was in Vietnam. But the fact of the matter is it, it, it didn't follow us home. This is different. And I think the American psyche is conditioned to now wallow again in the tragedy of Afghanistan. Oh, look at the poor Afghans. Look at our poor 13 Marines that were just killed at Hkaya. Let's wallow in all of this. The difference being, we're not going to get to wallow. This is We're walking away in the middle of a fist fight. And what happens when you walk away in the middle of the fist fight is you get punched in the back of the head over and over and over until you turn around and and force the other person to disengage um, or die trying. So that's the major miscalculation, I think, that we are making in the people in America um, that are comfortable saying, yeah, it was, it was the right time to leave Afghanistan. That's the major miscalculation I think they're making. And I do think this will follow us to our detriment. And I hope we don't have another 9-11 on our hands. But there is absolutely, I can tell you as somebody who this day that we're talking one year ago, this day I was in Afghanistan and I can tell you 100% every single Sunni terrorist organization on this planet with very few exceptions has a toehold inside Afghanistan to leave that country without adult supervision and now emboldened by our departure and stubborn in our refusal to see any way to increase our, our, our manpower on the ground or even to help our own people out will have a hugely detrimental effect and a hugely positive psychological boost for some of the biggest terror elements um, in the Sunni world. And I think it's important, and I, I think it's important to keep circling back to Afghanistan's relationship with its neighbors. Terror groups don't exist in a vacuum. There are nation states that assist terror groups that even if they're not ideologically aligned, they can see value in you know, my brother and I against my cousin, my cousin and I against the world, they can see value in partnering with somebody that can do damage to us. Um, and it, as the Chinese start to strike a deal with the Taliban, as Iran now can contemplate hegemony over Western Afghanistan, there are going to be real consequences because you have incredibly motivated nation state actors partnered with unleashed Sunni terror elements inside Afghanistan with complete freedom of movement. I think one other piece that makes Afghanistan different from Vietnam, Afghanistan isn't a cultural crossroads and a crossroads of the world the way it is for no reason. It's not Vietnam. It's not sitting out the tip of a peninsula. You know, it is right smack in the middle of a lot of things. There is a lot of money that passes through Afghanistan. 
There are a lot of drugs that pass through Afghanistan. There's a lot of guns, missiles, weaponized, uh, which I say weaponized substances that can pass through Afghanistan. Um, and a lot of entities in Afghanistan and surrounding Afghanistan that traffic in those things. It is an incredibly lethal mix of elements that you have that we're leaving in Afghanistan completely unsupervised, except maybe with a satellite somewhere that's supposed to be able to tell us the importance of whatever rock it is that we're looking at, uh, you know, zoomed in close. So yeah, I'm, I'm incredibly nervous about what this is going to mean, but we better not wallow in this tragedy for long. Uh, we better get our game face on because, um, this will have consequences. One point I, I also wanted to make too, and uh, you know, we 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 talked a little bit about this about the reluctance people have sometimes of of American intervention, and one of those things I, I think they often fail to account for is the fact that I think a lot of people are just uncomfortable with any country, play, including their own, playing a role where it it takes the mantle of leadership in the world. And there's kind of this, you talk about wallowing and there's kind of this uh, self, like it, it, it's kind of ostem- ostensibly, excuse me, it's, it's ostensibly humble, but it actually uh, is very unrealistic. The idea that America shouldn't have global responsibilities and shouldn't be the one to handle this. Uh, but in a sense, by acting to intervene and take down the Taliban, it was a service to the world not just to us. And there's nothing wrong, in my opinion, of doing that, because if our interests align with the world's interests, it's a completely legitimate action to take. And unfortunately, it seems that we've we've undone that right now. Richard, you, you hit the nail on the head. I, I think it's important for Americans to understand how important uh, we are to the world, not from our own perspective, but from the world's perspective. I think to people that don't understand, for example, like why vets are, are so worked up about Afghanistan right now. If you've ever had to do business on behalf of this country and represent the stars and stripes, you become acutely aware how, what the capital of trust that has been built up in those stars and stripes that when you walk into a room as a representative of the United States government, that means something because we were a colony. We were never colonizers. We were a colony. And that, that empathy, that natural sympathies that we have just on a, on a person to person level, we naturally build rapport with people all over the world because of that. And they build rapport with us because of that, because they look and they go, I could be an American. And we look at them and we're, and we see that in them. We go, yeah, you really could be. And this isn't, I'm not saying this is a stated conversation. I'm saying this is just the, the spiritual tenor of the dialogues that you have when you're trying to interact as an, as an official representative of the U.S. government with people, especially in the third world and in war zones. People look at that stars and stripes more favorably than they do the Red Cross. They're like, thank God you guys are here. And if an American gives his word, it means something. And in this country, I get it. We have our domestic politics. We have domestic squabbles. Uh, we like to look at our imperfections. There's a lot of virtue in that, and that's all well and good. But we can't become so solipsistic that we're not aware that despite our foibles, man, we are the best bet in the world for people and that we need to own that leadership. And as you said, it is a human rights enabler everywhere we go. 
um, for the United States to have that presence, that we're not an occupier. And it's worth saying, in the history of Afghanistan, for all this talk of graveyard of empires, we are the only entity, the only nation to ever occupy Afghanistan and never be thrown out by revolution of the people. In fact, hmm. on the contrary, we have Afghans hanging to the side of our planes to leave with us. Mm-hmm. That is mm-hmm. it, 180 degrees different from every other foreign involvement in Afghanistan in the history of Afghanistan, whether it was the Iranians, the Russians, the British, it doesn't matter who was in there. They were all kicked out with extreme prejudice, except us. So to those that go, oh, it's American imperialism, I would submit to you, you don't understand the meaning of imperialism or the meaning of America, because that's not what we do. That's not who we are. And that has not been our lived experience. And you don't have to ask us. You can ask the people on the ground in the places we've been. And that to me is that's the capital of trust that we've built up that unfortunately, in the last week or so, I do think has been undercut severely. And and to your earlier question about what this means for our alliances, I I, I really I hate to say this because I, I I hope I'm wrong, but I do think we are going to look back at this at what's happened over the past few weeks and realize that there was American foreign relations before this moment and American foreign relations after this moment, and those are two different things. And unless we really do some amazing Marshall Plan level. Uh, uh, diplomacy to make up for what we've done in the past week or two. Uh, this is going to be a stain that's going to take a long time to wash out of, of our international reputation. I, I think it's also easy to forget just the impact that that makes. And during our Nixon episode, uh, there was an episode that I, I wanted to talk about. One of my friends actually brought this to my attention was that uh, during the conflict between Pakistan and Bangladesh in the 70s, the Nixon administration basically looked the other way and atrocities committed at uh, towards uh, Bangladesh because we had a, a, you know, basically relationship with Pakistan. And one can argue yes or no, whether that was the right thing to do, if it was real politique, et cetera. But the, the Bangladeshis remember that. And right. the average American doesn't remember that. I study history. I didn't yeah. know about it until a couple of yeah. years ago, but they remember that. And that's one of the great tragedies. Now, I want to get back to that, um, but I, I do want to ask you uh, a couple more questions. One is CIA Director Nicholas Burns flew to Afghanistan, I believe, recently and yeah. met with the Taliban. What do you make of this, if, if, you, know, if you wouldn't mind commenting on that? No, uh, listen, I, I mean... Look, uh, I've 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 had I have a lot of respect for the CIA, and I've worked enough with them to I think know when they what their left and right limits are. Um, I it's not a good look. Let me start there. It's not a good look for him to go there. Um, and that's not to say it was the wrong thing to do. That's not even to say that there weren't real needs for him to go there. If I had to guess, as I'm sure most of us are, I would say they probably t- discussed, and I have no knowledge of this, but again, it's a guess. I would say they probably discussed um, carrots and sticks that we are going to use with the Taliban to engender their personnel recovery capabilities, because essentially they are going to be our personnel recovery team 
inside Afghanistan going forward. And it seems like we're going to use their desire for commercial airports to be open as a uh, carrot and say, we'll help you keep those airports open, make sure you have air traffic and controllers um, and commercial flights can come in and out and we'll help you try to continue the you know, uh, relatively burgeoning Afghan economy that you've now taken over. Um, so I think they probably sat down and discussed the ways forward on that and how the CIA and our government would um, collaborate with them on identifying people to be moved out and kind of uh, who gets a um, who, who gets protective cover from the Taliban and the Taliban is going to have to uh, hold their fire on to make sure that they get out and, and how that's going to work. I would imagine that the mechanics of that were what was being discussed. And I get the necessity for it. But the fact we're even in that situation and uh, it just galls me and not because there's some pride wrapped up in us having to do business with the Taliban or sink down to their level, but more that um, we're literally not improving the situation and we know that we're not improving that situation. And let me give a quick example because I think that'll help illuminate what I'm talking about. So let's say that we do have uh, a, a group of people that have identi been identified by the U.S. government as worthy of being saved, whether they're SIV holders, green card holders, American citizens, what have you. They're in a car and they're Afghan-Americans or, or American citizens with their Afghan allies. And we say to the Taliban, okay, well, this is who we want to um, help out. And this is who we want to get to the Tajik border or something. And the Taliban says, okay. Um, will help you get there. Um, that's all well and good for those people. But the Taliban are then able to track who their family members are. And they're able to track who their associates are. Mm -hmm. And they're able to track who is it that gave them the car that they're traveling in. So even though on the surface, the Taliban just helped us save, let's say, five lives, maybe 18 accessory associated people are now going to be targeted outside of that protected class uh, because the Taliban can now track who they are and track how who knew who and how and, and how that whole spider web of our uh, of our networks was developed. Um, so the fact we're even discussing these kind of things with the Taliban puts people at risk um, and and contradicts our national interest. And to your point about Bangladesh, this is something uh, that Afghans will talk about for years about how the United States did them wrong. And that's something that Afghans will not forget. Um, it's not lost to me that, that I remember discussing with one of my Afghan friends, you know, I said, well, who do you consider an infidel? And before I could even finish the sentence, he just said Russians, because hmm. he still remembered the atrocities that Russians had committed, even mm -hmm. though he was, I, I think this might've even happened right before he was born. But uh, this was just burned into their psyche that the, the, how horrifically the Russians had acted in that country and the way they had mass murdered Afghans capriciously, arbitrarily and repeatedly. And, um, and I think this, this, um, e even though the airlift has been, uh, a, a solid move. And even though we've struck some ISIS commanders, um, you know, we're not without our wins in the last couple of weeks, but the overall net effect of this is going to be um, truly shameful 
uh, and the Afghan people understand that. And that's to, um, that's something that if we care about having people help us on the ground in any country ever again, we have to make right. The Battle of Waterloo was one of the most famous turning points in world history. But what happened next? My name's David Montgomery, and I'm the host of The Siecla, a history podcast that tackles exactly that. Join me as I cover France's overlooked century in between Napoleon and World War I. The Siecla, spelled S-I-E-C-L-E, is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and can be found wherever you get podcasts. One thing I thought was interesting, uh, right now, if you go online, you're seeing people saying all sorts of things. You're seeing some people saying, okay, well, Biden, uh, you know, this is all Biden's fault and that Trump wouldn't have pulled out like this. And then you're seeing Biden, uh, you know, Biden people saying Trump started this process. What I'm getting from you is that this was kind of the direction of uh, basically this is something that happened as a result of the policy direction of the last three presidents, including the current one that uh, is being epically botched by the current administration, but which the last three administrations have their fingerprints all uh, all over. That's kind of the sense I'm getting from you. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely right. I mean, that said, I think also we need to get out of this binary uh, uh, paradigm in this country where everything boils back to domestic political concerns. Well, therefore, who should I vote for? And I and I think it's it, we have to get out of that 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 binary and realize that um, two things can be true at once. Um, that people, regardless of political party, can both be wrong. And uh, but yes, you're right. Um, now, as to whether or not how Trump would have executed this, I mean, who who knows? I don't think Trump himself knows. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm sure he has an opinion now, but uh, at the time, I, you know, had he been reelected, uh, there's no way of knowing. I will tell you this much: um, in my experience, what I saw was a lack of messaging from the top, a lack of focus from the top, and that we truly, and I'm not trying to throw my my, my fellow service members under the bus at all. Um, there were a lot of people working very hard to try to do the right thing when I was in Afghanistan. Um, there were a bunch of people who weren't uh, because everybody kind of shrugged and was like, this war is over, man. Um, especially this time last year, I remember everybody was glued watching the same thing everybody in the States was watching, watching cities on fire in the United States, um, talking about domestic politics. Um, that was the subject of conversation. And everybody was acutely aware overseas that Afghanistan was not even on the back burner. It wasn't even on the stove. It was not a subject of conversation. And there were um, very few people uh, that were working overtime to try to influence decision makers and show them that the threat was not going away, that we could will ourselves blind, but that was not going to render the threat non-existent and that there was a threat and it was growing and metastasizing and we were not addressing it. Um, and that is, and now, uh, now that everybody's paying attention again and has kind of woken up, we're remembering 
what we should have been paying attention to. And I don't blame our people there. It's hard to stay motivated um, in, in a combat zone when there's no uh, messaging from the top, when there's no direction from the top, when decisions seem arbitrary, capricious, um, unpredictable. Uh, you, you never, uh, you know, it, 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 even our NATO allies were, were confused. Uh, in, in my experience, they, they, uh, didn't understand where, where America's head was at and what they could expect from us. Um, and in many ways I saw our NATO partners more engaged than we were. And that comes from the messaging at the top. Um, the, the, so the, by the time that hits, you know, people on the ground and how they need to execute their job. Um, if the job's not clear or something, you're just going to take the most risk averse path. And that generally consists of playing Xbox in your hooch and um, making sure you don't get in trouble. So one of the things about foreign policy, defense policy, oftentimes it's very hard to get people to care about it. Uh, hmm. People do yeah. care about it, but it's usually harder to get them to care about it because it might not impact them the same way. Uh, that's say an economic downturn might impact yeah. them yep. or crime or whatever. Um, what do you say to people who might look at this and say, well, okay, sure. Don't really know how it affects me. And how do you think we can get people as somebody personally, I care a great deal. Uh, I, I think people should, I believe people should care about it, but how do we get people to care about something like that? I'm very forgiving of the American people uh, when it comes to foreign policy. Look, people have lives, they have families, they have jobs. If it's not your job to be focused on Afghanistan, um, and it's very few people's job to be focused on Afghanistan. Uh, look, why would you know what's going on there? It's not your job. You've got other stuff to do. I get it. Um, but this is why we have a commander in chief. And this is why the commander in chief has the bully pulpit and has the ability to message. And if the commander in chief is not willing to use that to constantly reinforce with the American people, hey, remember, this is why we're here, because I know you're not thinking about it because you do have other things to worry about, but I'm going to remind you of why this is important. And this kind of circled back to what we talked about before. This is why the fact that since Bush, we have not had a president that's wanted us in Afghanistan is so detrimental. It's not just that it affects the policies. It's that it affects America, the American public's focus, because if the president really doesn't want us there and isn't going to pay that much attention to it, and certainly not going to message, try to message a lot about, about Afghanistan, then you can't expect the American people to give themselves homework projects to find out about Afghanistan or about any conflict we're in. Um, that's an unrealistic ask. And on a lot of things, I'm a grassroots guy. I believe that, you know, the more uh, history channel programming happens, the more podcasts like yours happen, um, where people are talking about these issues and, and making it so it's kind of uh, in the subject of conversation, just generally even around water coolers. Awesome. But if there was ever an issue that needed top-down messaging, it's this, because that's what the commander-in-chief is there for, is to become the messenger-in-chief and message this to the American people. And Bush certainly had his problems with articulation, but he didn't lack for trying to reinforce the message when he could. But when no other president since him has tried to, um, you can't blame the American people, I think, for not being able to stay focused on where we are in the world and why we're why we are there. 
Chris, thanks so much for uh, just all your insights. Uh, this is a, a great deep dive, uh, and you've answered not just questions I wanted to have on the podcast, but just ones that I've wanted to I want to know myself. Uh, so thank you just for being on the show. Uh, thank you also for your service um, and just uh, you know your patriotism, your love of country, and uh, I just wanted to point out again that you're the host of the Weekly Havoc and uh, Savage Wonder. And uh, also, if people want to find you, you you do a, a a lot of pretty cool things here. So you're the artistic director of Veterans Repertory Theater. And you're the president of the, is it Grisa? Is that how you say Grisse. it? Grisse. Yeah, it's, okay. a, it's a funny pronunciation, Grisse Center. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, funny pronunciation. And I, I'm quite uncouth in that kind of, in, in, in that realm. So uh, Grisse Center for Veterans of the Arts. Uh, what exactly, I mean, so you're in the performing arts, it sounds like, basically. Yeah. So um, w- what our mission is, uh, I, I found it actually just when I got out of the military in February, um, the, the mission is to have a foot in the veteran, in the warrior world, if you will, and have a foot in the arts world. Um, that there's a, uh, a theater is probably the most unrepresented. Uh, veterans are most unrepresented minority in, in the theater, in the American theater, and that's a shame. Um, the theater is a you know beautifully subversive, political, um, uh, wildly creative medium. And uh, it has, in my opinion, become increasingly provincial and increasingly um, uh, uh, focused on a very uh, select group of stories and with a select group of decision makers and taste makers uh, guiding those ships there. And uh, to me, to miss out on the the wide span of experiential knowledge that America's veterans have is a real disservice. Um, so we started the Grisset Center. Um, I'm happy to have a robust board of directors. Uh, we have uh, members of the West Point community, which is uh, close by. Uh, a lot of good buy-in from them and um, a lot of supporters in a region that's rich with military and law enforcement uh, traditions. Um, so to try to bring those stories to the theater stage, and um, it's not so much the actors, but it is very much the storytellers, the playwrights themselves, being veterans is kind of the core um, heart and soul of our effort. And as, I, uh, as I've said to people, if I do my job correctly in 10, 15 years, I'd like to see the veterans that we nurture and, and develop and mentor uh, start to have TV deals and movie deals and what have you and really be able to um, influence pop culture um, with their work. Because uh, I, I do think what makes veterans special is the experiential knowledge you get of the human condition. And if you can't leverage that, into the entertainment sphere, then we're losing a lot of, of knowledge capital. And that would be a shame in this country. That's wonderful. So, uh, you know, for all our listeners, make sure you check it out. Uh, Grise, Grise Center for Veterans of the Arts. That's G-R-I-E-S-A. Uh, the Veterans Repertory Theater. You're on Instagram and Facebook. Uh, your handle is Veterans Repertory Theater and Vet Rep Theater. Again, pod, your podcasts are Weekly Havoc and Savage Wonder. Uh, Chris, thanks again. And if there's just one last note I, I would just like to say is that, um, you know, with all the horrible things happening, uh, just we're all praying. I mean, I, we, we, I guess for myself, not someone that knows exactly what I can do. I believe that we can pray for just all the people that are in Afghanistan and uh, people 
from Afghanistan, but also the people, uh, the soldiers, the professionals from outside of Afghanistan that are in the country doing their best right now to help people. And it sounds like you're one of those people as well. So we, we just, uh, we're so grateful for that. And uh, we'll be praying for you and just the people that you know out there. Richard, I, I deeply appreciate that. And as I, as I told you before the show, um, not only thank you for having me on, but I apologize in advance if I'm not as articulate as I would like to be, but we have been working a lot the last, especially the last couple of days to get some people out of Afghanistan. So I'm a little bit sleep deprived right now. Um, I, to that, to your point though, I do encourage ever anyone that's interested, follow us on Instagram. Uh, we do routinely post organizations you can support to help people in Afghanistan and people getting out of Afghanistan. Um, and your prayers are deeply, deeply, deeply appreciated. This American president is produced by myself, Richard Lim and Michael Neal. If you like what you've been hearing, you can help us by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to our show. I'm Richard Lim. We're back next time with more This American President. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to, but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. Because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts.